Thanks, Kath. Uh, well read, by the way. Thank you, Kim, as well. You got lucky there, didn't you, Kim? You know, you got the easy one. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, and by the way, the Matildas were robbed. That was a handball. If you saw it, twice. There you go. Yeah, right. Absolutely. Well, um, friends, why don't we do this? I'd, I'd really, it'd be great if we, you had a Bible open in front of you. So um, let's just take a moment. Why don't we, if you want to have a stretch, stand up, take a stretch. If you need a Bible, go and grab a Bible from the foyer and then we'll come back together in about a minute. All right, let's do that. Okay, I missed the page number. What was the page number of 1 Samuel 14? 275. There we go. All right. And if you've got your bulletin there, there's an outline there. That'll help you follow along. And if we get time, which we should do, we'll have a bit of a Q&A at the end and see how we go with that. Why don't I pray for us and ask God to help us as we look at his word this morning. Father, thank you for your goodness and kindness to us uh, Thank you, God, that you've given us your word. As we heard from Jesus, Lord, we pray that we put it into practice, that we build our house on the rock, and that is you, Lord Jesus. Amen. Well, if you are a motor racing fan, and I know there's a few of them in the room here this morning, if you're a Formula One racing fan, then you would have known of, or you know of, the rivalry in the 1970s of the famous Nicky Lauda and James Hunt. Here the two are there. Uh, they were fierce competitors. They were both very driven. Thank you. Good. Excellent. That's all I needed. Just a little giggle from my family. That's great. Um, thank you very much. Uh, <laughs> So these two, so Hunt was the wild British playboy, if you knew that, you know, that sort of party guy. Uh, Lauda was the measured, calculated and much more sensible Austrian. Uh, sadly, Lauda died, I think it was about a month ago. Uh, now, about halfway through the 1976 season, with Lauda comfortably ahead in the Drivers' Championship, one day, uh, one race, one moment, one corner changed everything. It was the German Grand Prix at uh, Nürburgring. That's probably not how to pronounce it. Uh, August 1, 1976. It was the day of Lauda's infamous uh, high-speed explosive crash. Uh, he came within a whisker of death, really, and uh, suffered horrific burns. Hunt went on to win that race and the 1976 Drivers' Championship. But, but I wonder, if you're this sort of fan, and even if you're not, just think about it for the moment. I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about how James Hunt thought of his victory. Not only that day, but also in the Drivers' Championship that year. It was the only Drivers' Championship that he won, 1976. Now, maybe he's just, you know, he was so ruthless a competitor that Lauda's accident and injuries didn't affect him at all. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But I imagine it would have affected all the drivers, I would think. Horrific accident and horrific injuries. And I imagine it would have affected Hunt. And off the track, apparently they got on reasonably well. So my guess is Hunt's victories that year were victories tinged 
with sadness. That's, well, that's the flavour of 1 Samuel 14. It's a victory tinged with sadness. Now let's find out why. If you've got a Bible, as I said, have it open to the start of 1 Samuel 14. Now we're going to look at the bit before the bit that Kath read, so that we understand the bit that Kath read. Uh, that's how it's going to work. Now the chapter begins with the writer getting straight into things and he sets the scene in verses 1 to 5. So here's the plan in verse 1, Jonathan's plan. Verse 2, here are the leaders. And verses 4 to 5, here's the place. So here's the plan. One day, so chapter 14 deals with one day, a whole day, all right, and a battle. One day Jonathan, son of Saul, said to his young armour bearer, come, let's go over to, those, to the Philistine outposts on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Now, it's hard not to love Jonathan's sheer audacity. Jonathan is a man of action. Saul, in contrast, is, in verse 2, well, he's not. Boldness was not Saul's forte these days. And it's interesting, too, the last line of verse 1, I would think, that, and it's a taste of what's to come. Here's Jonathan, here's Saul, this contrast, and Jonathan goes off, but he did not, did not tell his father. He, he, he won't be the last, he's not the first teenage boy who did something dangerous and didn't tell his dad. Um, <laughs> so Jonathan is moving and saw, well, saw what's he doing? He's sit up in, sitting up in the hills with some other leaders. Let's get on to that. Verse 2, Saul was staying at the outskirts of Gibeah. You might remember this map here. Michmash is there, about where the battle is. Saul's down here. A fair way away from the action. And he's sitting under a pomegranate tree in Migron. With him are about 600 men. Those 600 men, remember from last week, are, are in fear. Among whom was Ahijah, who was wearing an ephod. Now, an ephod is a priestly garment which contained the Urim and the Thurim, which we read about in the second half of the chapter. Now, we don't know much about them today, but they were used to obtain divine guidance. Uh, sometimes used well, other times not. Now, at first reading, that sounds like a good idea, though, doesn't it? Have a priest there sitting with you to seek God's guidance. But then we notice, as verse 2 continues, that this priest's uncle was a guy called Ichabod. He's famous because his name means, where's the glory? Now, if you remember, it's a reference actually back to chapter 4, in reference to the ark of God leaving Israel. That's not a good thing. He was named that because he was associated with the ark leaving Israel. Now, if we continue on, this priest Ahijah was the son of Ichabod's brother Ahitub, son of Phinehas. There's a name we might recognise, the son of Eli, the Lord's priest at Shiloh. So it gets a little worse, doesn't it? Here's Ichabod's father, and Ichabod's father was Phinehas, and we might remember him. He was one of Eli's dodgy womanising sons. So, here's Israel's leaders. They're sitting way back from the action, spending some time under a pomegranate tree. Who doesn't love pomegranates? Anyway, that's a, that's a separate thing. Um, there they are, sitting there. There's Saul. Saul's dynasty has been rejected. Remember chapter 13? And he's assisted by a guy called Ahijah, whose priestly line has been rejected. Phineas, Eli, 
those guys. And since Samuel has left, Saul has no authorised prophetic direction. Remember, when Samuel left at the end of the, at, at chapter 13, the word of God had left. It's not good, is it? And adding to all this is the fact that no one was switched on enough to notice that the king's son, Jonathan, had left the camp. Well, in verses 4 to 5, the scene is set or it's completed. The writer's good enough to describe uh, the topography of Jonathan's plan. It wasn't the place for a Sunday stroll. Have a look at verses 4 to 5. On each side of the pass, this is actually a picture of what they think it might have been the, the place. On each side of the pass, verse 4, was that Jonathan intended to cross to reach the Philistine outpost was a cliff. One was called Bozes. Isn't it great that they name cliffs? But Bozes means slippery. <laughs> so there's Bozes. Don't know which end is slippery, but they both look pretty slippery to me. Uh, slippery. And the other one was the other one was Senna. Senna means thorny. So slippery and thorny. Sound like cartoon characters, don't they? One cliff stood to the north toward Michmash, and the other to the south toward Geba. Okay, so here's the setting. There's a plan. It's secret. There are leaders, and they're rejected. And there's the place, which is impossible. Let's see what happens. We're ready for the action to start. If you've got your outline there, it's understanding faith, point one. So verse six, Jonathan said to his young armour bearer, come, let's go over to the outpost of those uncircumcised men. Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. I just love this comment of Jonathan's. It's fantastic. It deserves to be highlighted. If you've got your Bible, your own Bible, don't highlight a church Bible, please. Um, get your highlight out, underline it. It's fantastic. It's a great line. And it's not just teenage bravado either. This is faith in God. Remember, irrespective of the circumstances. And the circumstances were not good for Israel right now. And it's got nothing to do with optimism either. A lot of people think, well, that's what faith is. Faith is just optimism. No, it's not that. True faith is what's on show here. Let me show you how or why. Uh, first, it's a clear conviction about God. See what Jonathan says? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving. See, nothing is too hard for God. Nothing. Nothing is too hard for God. He can do anything. So friends, pray big prayers, won't you? Nothing is too hard for God. Pray for that conversion of that family member who you'd think, oh, there's no way he'd become a Christian. Or that friend at school who you'd think, oh, I won't share Jesus with them. No, 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 there's no way they'd be interested. No, no, no. Pray big prayers. Pray for your sick uh, relative or friend who's, who's really doing it tough. Pray big prayers. Pray for prayer in the Middle East. <laughs> Pray big prayers. Because God can do anything. It's what Jesus taught. It's what the whole Bible teaches. That's a clear, that faith is that clear conviction about God. The other thing faith is here, that it's defined, faith produces great expectation of God. Notice what Jonathan says, perhaps the Lord will act in our behalf. Now, now faith does not presume on God's power. It is a perhaps. These words might remind you of Jesus who said in the Garden of Gethsemane before his death, he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. And then later on he said, yet not my will but yours be done. It's a perhaps. 
True faith in God knows that he has the power to do all things, but submits to God's will, knowing that he is both wise and he's God. True faith says, well, who knows what God will do? Who knows what God will do? But we're going to trust him. We're going to, we're going to trust his sovereign care and control over all things. And let's just see what he does. And it's a pity Saul didn't have that same faith. Remember last week, um, you know, if he had, had believed in God's power and wisdom and goodness, then he wouldn't have disobeyed him. He wouldn't have done those sacrifices before Samuel arrived. He would have waited the seven days. Even if his situation was desperate. This is why his act of disobedience disqualified him from being king over God's people. God's king must trust God. Now, many today think to say perhaps when it comes to faith, sort of cuts the nerve of faith. That if faith is real faith, it must be certain, it must be dogmatic, it must be absolutely positive and assertive. Faith, however, must not be confused with arrogance. Jonathan's perhaps is part of his faith. He both confesses the power of God and he trusts in God's freedom to do what he pleases. Friends, faith does not dictate to God or demand to God, as if God is some office junior that we push around to do our errands. True faith recognises its fair share of ignorance and knows it has not read the divine transcript of God's decrees for life. So we say, perhaps. You know, what I love about this, uh, the word of God here, is that it doesn't cancel out, but it enhances the excitement, I think, anyway. Who knows what God would do? Who knows? But we're going to pray big because God can do anything. I know that he can do anything. So I'm going to pray that way. I'm going to ask God that way. And that's what Jonathan does. So back in chapter 14, verse 6, who knows what this omnipotent, that means all-powerful, God may be, who knows what God may be delighted to do against those heathen, nasty Philistines, Jonathan prays. And notice too in verse 7, notice that Jonathan's young armor bearer um, shares the same faith. He says, do all that you have in mind, his armor bearer says. Go ahead, I'm with you, brother, let's do this. I don't care, heart and soul, he says. Jonathan says, come on then. We will cross over toward them and let them see us. Remember, that's his plan. And he goes into his plan again uh, in verses 9 and 10. Uh, the, the plan, Jonathan's plan is to see, uh, is this way, so he's clear on whether God has given them the green light or not. So verse 9, if they say to us, wait there until we come to you, we will stay where we are and not go up to them. But if they say, come up to us, we will climb up because that will be our sign that the Lord has given them into our hands. So verse 11, both of them show themselves to the Philistine outpost. Hey, here we are. Here we are. Hello. Here we are. And the Philistines said, and trying to crack a few funnies at the, um, the, the Israelites' expense, the men, the Hebrews, are crawling out of their holes they were hiding in. The men at the outpost shouted to Jonathan and his armor bearer, come up to us, we'll teach you a lesson. That was all that Jonathan needed to hear. It was on. So Jonathan said to his armour bearer, Climb up after me. The Lord has given them into the hand of Israel. They climbed their way up Old Slippery, surprising the Philistines, who had probably gone back to beer and poker at this point, and they hit the Philistines before they could mention 
before they could call on Dagon, their God. (laughs) Jonathan, in verses 13 and 14, with just his fists and his feet, goes full UFC, taking down 20 men with his armour-bearer finishing them off. That's 20 men who would never teach a Hebrew another lesson. It's a great scene. Well, there are two results of this initial attack, terror and confusion. Have a look at verse 15. Then panic struck the whole army, those in the camp and field, and in those in the outposts and the raiding parties, and the ground shook. It was panic sent by God. Saul's lookouts at Gibeah in Benjamin saw the army melting away in all directions. Great metaphor, isn't it? We had a piece of ice uh, um, from uh, the other morning, and we, uh, it was quite thick, actually, from a, some water left out and a little buckety thing. And, um, as, and we put it on, on the, the warm, sun, sunny step, and it just melted away in all directions. Uh, that's the picture here of the Philistine army. It's pretty cool, isn't it? Just melting away. Uh, it had turned to water. This great Philistine force that, that caused so much fear to the Israelites had turned to water, running everywhere. Verse 17, Then Saul said to the men who were with him, Master the forces and see who has left us. When they did, it was Jonathan and his armour-bearer who were not there. He's finally caught on to the fact that his son's not around. Saul was clearly losing his grip. He knew nothing. He hadn't even noticed his son's absence. Now Saul panics a little here. He says, bring the ark of God. Desperate times, hey? Desperate times, call on God. Verse 18. uh, Saul said to Ahijah, that's the priest guy, bring the ark of God. Now, that time, it was with the Israelites. This is an interesting point here that the writer brings out. Of course it's with the Israelites. That's where it should be. He shouldn't have to write that. But the history is that the ark was not always with the Israelites. The ark of God, it should be with them. And so the writer's actually having a bit of a dig here at these unfaithful Israelites who have stuffed it up with the ark previously. Verse 19. While Saul was talking to the priests, the tumult in the, in the Philistine camp increased more and more. So Saul said to the priests, ah, withdraw your hand. It doesn't matter now. Look at them. It's fine. We don't need that. We don't need God. Verse 20, then Saul and all his men assembled and went to the battle. They found the Philistines in total confusion, striking each other with their own swords. Those Hebrews who had previously been with the Philistines and had gone up with them to their camp went over to the Philistines, sorry, went over to the Israelites who were with Saul and Jonathan. That's incredible, isn't it? Don't trust a fair weather friend. <laughs> Verse 22, when all the Israelites who had hidden in the hill country of Ephraim heard that the Philistines were on the run, they joined the battle in hot pursuit. Jump on the bandwagon, hey? Why not? Here's the bottom line. Verse 23, Saul had nothing to do with the victory. The writer makes that very clear. So on that day, the Lord saved Israel and the battle moved on beyond Beth-Avon. So Jonathan was right. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And it was a salvation that didn't begin with military tactics and numbers. It began with a real faith in God that said, perhaps, perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Well, there are clouds, though, hovering above this victory. 
Israel wins, but can hardly celebrate. And the writer explains why in verses 24 to 46. This is a bit that Kath read to us before. Uh, there is tragedy in the air. Let's notice this, though. Notice, that the, um, notice how the writer closes the section in verse 23. So the Lord rescued Israel that day. Now, verses 24 to 46 is a different take on that same day, a supplementary account, if you like. But we shouldn't miss this contrast. Last line of verse 23, so, the, so on that day the Lord saved Israel. Verse 24, now the Israelites were distressed on that day. How could they be distressed when the Lord saved them? What's going on there? Why is that the case? A day of victory, the Lord's saving them, but why are they in distress? Well, the reason was because Saul had pronounced a foolish and stupid curse. Have a look at verse 14, uh, sorry, chapter 14, verse 24. Halfway through, because Saul had bound the people under an oath, saying, Cursed be anyone who eats food before evening comes, before I have avenged myself on my enemies. So none of the troops tasted food. What's the one thing you really want when you're fighting a battle? You want some energy and food. Now, perhaps it's the desperate circumstances, but again, the contrast with Jonathan is stark. Remember Jonathan back in verse 6? Perhaps the Lord will act on our behalf. Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. But for Saul, it was all about him. The people supporting him, him avenging his enemies, him making no reference to God at all. Well, not surprisingly, I'm not going to go into much detail here. You might want to ask a question if you want to. But in the following verses, the curse, what does it lead to? Well, duh, it leads to distress in the form of military exhaustion. And then disobedience in terms of the sacrifices. They all ate food with, uh, with blood in it. Uh, the blood was important in the sacrificial system. Uh, the blood meant life or death. And so there was a restriction on how to eat your food. So you remember the, the importance of life and death and blood. And of course, when we see Jesus' blood shed for us on the cross, the, the ultimate and once for all sacrifice that made sense of that sacrificial system. And finally, it almost, this ridiculous curse or this ridiculous oath almost led to the death of Jonathan. But thankfully, Jonathan's, well, the army, the Israelites, stood up for Jonathan and not for Saul. Again, telling, isn't it? In fact, as we read, we can't help but thinking that Jonathan would make a far better king than Saul. And there's the tragedy. It's a victory tinged with sadness. Neither Jonathan nor any of Saul's children will ever get the opportunity. And chapter 13 told us that. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a huge um, uh, Shakespeare fan. I know they do a lot of Shakespeare at school still. I, I remember doing Macbeth, but I've got no idea what it was about. I can't remember. It was too far, ago, far away. Um, but Shakespeare is the man when it comes to dramatic tragedies. I had to ask her, Michelle about that. Um, <laughs> Michelle, give me an example of a tragedy. Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, there's a tragedy. So remember Romeo and Juliet. So here's the different types of Romeo and Juliets you've seen on the movies. Um, but it's a great story. It's a romantic story, isn't it? You know, the two young lovers and eventually their death brings together the feuding families and all that sort of thing. I do remember that story. Now, my English teacher defined a tragedy, the proper dramatic term, um, like this, all right? Well, not my English teacher, English teachers. I think this is right. A drama or literary work 
in which the main character is brought to ruin or suffers extreme sorrow, especially as a consequence of a tragic flaw, moral weakness or inability to cope with unfavourable circumstances. Remind you of anyone? Saul, isn't it? There's Saul. You see, in our minds, in our culture today, self-fulfilment, that's right. Let me explain. You see, well, Jonathan's got the skills, the faith, the people's support. He should be king. Why on earth not? If we have the ingenuity, the discipline, our efforts should be crowned with success. If you work hard, you should be rewarded, right? Self-fulfillment. And if we're good religious people, we happily acknowledge that God and Jesus has helped us in our quest. We can always use a helping hand, can't we? Hey, isn't God good like that? That's a bit of sarcasm. You didn't pick it up. Um, But Jonathan seemed to know better. The kingdom was not Saul's or Jonathan's. It was God's kingdom. For Jonathan, then, the, the kingdom was not his to seize, not his to rule, but his to serve. See, maybe this is no tragedy at all. If we live in faithfulness to what Jesus asks of us in the circumstances he gives us, that's not tragic. Nothing tragic about that, is there? Well, the the chapter closes with history judging Saul. It closes how uh, it should in terms of historical record. uh, And it's a pretty positive summary of, of Saul's rule. It's how history or people would assess or judge success. And Saul, well, Saul made his mark well, didn't he? If you have a look in your Bibles there, the last sort of verses 47 to 52. And when it comes to defeating enemies and winning battles, well, he did a good job. That was his legacy. It's how history will remember him. Leaders, you know, leaders leave a legacy, don't they? They do. World leaders, politicians, government leaders, church leaders, they leave a legacy. But of course, some people are infamous in the legacy they leave. They're remembered for all the wrong reasons. I do wonder how, how will history remember some of today's world leaders? Who knows? We'll find out, I suppose, at some time. But how will they do it? How will history remember them? What will be their legacy? What about yours? What will your legacy be? How would you like to be remembered? That was a good question that was, um, uh, Grace told us about it a, a couple of weeks ago from the Grandparents Conference down in Fig Tree. Uh, a few of our number went on down to that. They were challenged about, as grandparents, what their legacy will be. But it's not just grandparents who need to consider that question, is it? Uh, we all need to consider that question. See, the truth is, history does not have the decisive verdict. It's God's verdict that matters. It's God's judgment that matters. We see that with Saul. It's God who rules over history. This is what one writer said, For the Bible covenant, obedience matters far more than vocational achievement. Have you thought about your legacy? How do you want to be remembered? How people know of you now? When it comes to God, obedience matters far more than vocational achievement. It's worth thinking about, isn't it? Worth thinking about as a leader, as a parent, as a grandparent, as a worker, as a friend, as a student, whatever. 
Well, Saul is one of the great tragic figures in world history and um, world literature. We, we sense this and we feel it because we know his weaknesses very well, don't we? Let's be honest with ourselves. Saul failed as I've failed. Uh, probably as you've failed too. We know what it is to forget God. We know what it is. I know what it is to not trust God and disobey God. What we've seen, however, is that that lack of faith in God, as Samuel had said to, to, uh, to Saul at Gilgal, is foolish. See, our schemes and plans to save ourselves are likely to be as stupid as Saul's silly oath. Only God can save us from our real enemies. He can and he will. We ought to see in Saul's story this lesson in our own lives. Yeah, let's not be like Saul. Let's not forget God. Let's trust him and obey him. But we can't miss the deeper lesson here. Don't miss it. The lesson here from Saul, and that is that his failure should point us to the king who was everything that Saul failed to be. If we've seen Saul's foolishness, then let that point us to the wisdom to the one who said, Therefore everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and out of the winds, and the winds blew and the beat against that house, yet it did not fall, because it had its foundation on the rock. How about I pray and ask God to help us with that? Father, we thank you for your word today. Lord, we thank you um, uh, for the faithful example of Jonathan. And Lord, we do thank you for the example of Saul too. We don't want to be like him. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. And we pray, Lord, in trusting him and your word that we would build our house on the rock, that our foundation would be Jesus that would put Jesus' words into practice. Amen.